Good morning. I would like to thank you for inviting me to be with you this weekend. It was a joy and delight to be with the men this weekend. All of my conversations were edifying and helpful to my soul. I was particularly encouraged by the attentiveness of the men as they listened to the Word. I am especially edified by your pastor, spending time with him, seeing his love for you, his love for the Lord, and his humility. Uh, I hope that you know what a jewel you have in him, and I hope that you are appreciative to God for what he has given you, and that you are thankful to your pastor for what he does in serving you. I get asked to speak at a number of places, and I meet quite a few pastors, and I want to let you know that what you have here uh, is a rare jewel, and I hope that you have thankful hearts for what God has done for you in that. Last year, my cousin passed away. He was 84 years old. About two months before he died, he told me a story. The story was that in 1955, as he was a first-year student at the Dubois Business College in Dubois, Pennsylvania, my little town, he was walking through the street of our little town, and this is before the days of air conditioning, and he hears a noise in the distance. As he walks up, to a bar, he hears a woman inside uh, who is loud. Uh, she is boisterous. Uh, she is cackling. Uh, she is drunk. She is obnoxious. And she can be heard all the way out in the street. The voice that he heard was that of our aunt. Uh, it was my mother's sister. Her name was Florence. Uh, she was the town drunk. Uh, she was so embarrassing to our family that my father denied that he was related to her. That was in 1955. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do want to thank you for your word. And now today, as we look into your word, we acknowledge, first of all, that your word is truth. Lord, we acknowledge that your word is the power of God unto salvation. And so, Lord, as this gospel is preached today, I pray that it will have a powerful impact upon these people. I pray, Lord, as we study the subject of restoration, that we will not only learn about it today, but I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that where there needs to be restoration, Lord, that you, through your powerful hand, will work that in our lives. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to speak to you today on the subject of restoration. In order to illustrate this, I want to tell you a story of something that happened to me a few years ago. I was getting a haircut. My barber, who does not speak much English, uh, was cutting my hair. Uh, and before he cut my hair, I said, listen, I need you to don't take too much off. Uh, the reason I say that is because I want to give the illusion that I actually have some hair. I want to move it around so that people will think that I have some hair. Why was I doing that? Because I am not a quitter like Joey, okay? I'm 
I'm willing to fight this thing, and I'm going to keep fighting it. I'm not a quitter. And so I said, don't cut that much. So he's cutting my hair, and in the midst of my haircut, a friend of his comes in and sits directly behind him. And my barber turns and starts to have a conversation with his friend while he is cutting my hair. So here's the picture. There's the mirror. Here I am. I am watching my hair be cut by a man who is not looking at my head. He is cutting my hair while he is talking to his friend. At the conclusion of the haircut, I said, suddenly, I'm not half the man I used to be. I needed restoration, restoration. We live in a fallen world where we are in constant need of restoration. Fairy tale endings are reserved for fairy tales. Entropy has an undefeated record. All the king's horses and all the king's men are busy. Uh, we live in a broken, fallen world where restoration is constantly in need. If you can replace a hip or a roof or a fender, you're going to make a good living. Orthodontists do not work for minimum wage. Why? Because we live in a fallen, broken world where things constantly need to be repaired. Perhaps it's your marriage. Perhaps it's your finances. Maybe it is another relationship in your life. Job put it this way, man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. We live in a world where we are constantly in need of restoration. And the place where we feel it the least is the place where we need it the most, and that is in our relationship with God. And that is why Jesus Christ came to bring us to God. Christ, the righteous, died for the unrighteous. Why? So that he might bring us to God. Restoration, it is something which is desperately, desperately needed in our world. How is it going to come about? Well, I would like to illustrate it today in a story from the Old Testament. If you would have your Bibles, I would ask please that you would turn to 2 Kings chapter 8. We're going to look at the first six verses, and I'm just sort of going to make my way through giving a running commentary of these six verses, 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, Elisha, who was Elisha? Elisha was the one who came after Elijah. Elisha was the most prolific miracle worker in the Bible outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, arise and depart with your household and sojourn or temporarily travel wherever you can, for the Lord Yahweh has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines for seven years. Who was this woman? She's known as the Shunammite woman. We are introduced to her back in 2 Kings chapter 4. This woman was a kind woman and a benevolent woman. She and her husband knew that Elisha would frequently be coming through her region, and so she said to her husband, why don't we build a room on the top of our house so that when Elisha comes through, he will have somewhere to stay? And so that room was built for Elisha. 
Elisha went to the woman and said, well, you have been so kind to me. Is there anything that I can do for you? The woman said, no, I have everything that I need. I dwell among my people. I don't need anything at all. But Elisha's servant at the time, a man by the name of Gehazi, said to Elisha, I know what the woman needs. She's got a few miles on her, and her husband is already an old man, and they don't have any children. That's what they would really like. And so Elisha said to the woman, next year at this time, you're going to have a baby. Fade in, fade out. A year later, she has a little boy. The little boy starts to grow up, and one day he's out in the field with his father. He begins to complain of a headache. He goes into the house. He crawls up on his mother's lap, and there in her arms, he dies. What does the woman do? She picks up her dead son, carries him up the steps to Elisha's room, and lays him out on the bed. She then goes to find Elisha. Elisha is not there in Shunem with her, but he is 16 miles away in Mount Carmel. And so she makes the journey to Mount Carmel. She finds Elisha, explains the situation, and Elisha, who was probably not that fleet of foot at the time, tells his servant Gehazi, I want you to run ahead of us. I want you to take my staff. I want you to Go into the room and lay the staff across the boy. Gehazi does that. The boy does not come back to life. Elisha and the woman follow those 16 miles back to Shunem. And Elisha walks into the room and in what is arguably the most unusual prayer meeting in the Bible, he raises the little boy to life and the boy is presented back to his mother. That is the woman that is referred to here the Shunammite woman. Now, for our text today, Elisha gets word from the Lord that the Lord has called for a seven-year famine. Consider what a seven-year famine will do. Back in 1 Kings chapter 17, there was a a three-and-a-half-year famine, and people were dying then. If you take that number up to seven years, you can't stay you've got to leave. It doesn't matter where you go, you just have to leave. And so Elisha, in an act of kindness, comes to her and says, you're going to have to go. And so she sojourns or temporarily travels for seven years in the land of the Philistines, which brings us to verse three. And at the end of seven years, When the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Apparently what happens is while she's gone, the government confiscates her property, nothing ever changes, and here she is going to the king to get her house back and to get her land back. Now as we move into verse 4, I can read the English words for you, and I understand what the English words mean, but I cannot explain why verse 4 is in the Bible. It is one of the most unusual, baffling verses in all of Scripture. I cannot tell you why this happened. It is excessively unusual. What does it say? It says, now the king, who was the king? The king at this time was a man by the name of Jehoram. He was the grandson of Ahab and Jezebel, and the apple has not fallen far from the tree. He is 
an excessively wicked king. One day, this king wakes up, verse 4, and says that he wants to know what is happening in the ministry of Elisha with respect to his miracles. Look at the verse. Now, the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God. Why was Gehazi at this time available to have a conversation with the king? Well, because Gehazi is no longer in the ministry. He is now a defrocked clergyman. The reason he is no longer in the ministry is because he is now a leper. And the reason that he is a leper is because he tried to extort money from a Syrian general by the name of Naaman. And so he is there in Samaria with the king, and the king is talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, here's what the king wanted to know, tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. This is bizarre on so many levels. First of all, it is strange because this is a wicked king. Why in the world would he want to know the great things that were done through the miracle working power of Elisha? Furthermore, it is strange because this king himself was present on at least a couple of different occasions when Elisha performed miracles. Also, it is really strange because on multiple occasions, this king tried to kill Elisha. But one day, for reasons we will never know, this king wakes up and he says, will you please summon the former assistant of Elisha and have him come and tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. As we move on to verse 5, we find the key to restoration, and it is found in the second English word in verse 5. And while, W-H-I-L-E, while, this is the heart of the passage, that word, while, at the same time, simultaneously, and while, he, Gehazi, was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, which is the story I told you a few minutes ago about the son of the Shunammite woman. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, anytime you see the word behold in the Bible, it means paint a picture in your mind's eye. Behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house. In other words, as she and her son are being talked about at that exact moment, she appears and starts talking to the king about receiving restoration of her land and her property. Again, and while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, surprised, my lord, O king, here is the woman and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. It is important that you understand and you can paint in your eye, mind's eye what is happening here. The king and Gehazi are having a conversation. They're talking about many miracles. At the time, in which Gehazi was talking about the miracle of the dead boy being raised to life. The dead boy walks into the room with his mother, his mother seeking restoration at that time. The king needs to make sure that this is indeed not choreographed, that it is real. 
So what the king does in verse 6, when the king had asked the woman, she told him, is it really true? Your son was dead and now he's alive. Yes, that's true. So what did the king do? So the king appointed an official for her saying, restore all that was hers together with the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. In other words, give her back her house, give her back her property, and anything that would have grown on that property for the last seven years, give it back to her. You know what that is called? Restoration. It's called restoration. Were you able to draw this up in your mind's eye? See if you can, see if you can envision it. King wakes up one morning, says, I want to know what happened in the ministry of Elisha. Get Gehazi for me. Gehazi, tell me the great works of Elisha. And Gehazi says, well, king, I don't, I don't even know where to start. I guess we can go back to the beginning when he and Elijah were on the other side of the Jordan River and Elijah was taken up into heaven, swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home as Elisha is leaving. He drops his mantle. Elisha catches it. He uses it to part the waters of the Jordan River. He gets to the other side. He's at Jericho. The water there is bitter. Elisha throws salt into the water. It becomes sweet. He moves on from there, king, over to Bethel. As he's on his way to Bethel, there are some young people who make fun of him because he is bald. And what happens? Lo and behold, a couple of bear come out of the woods and they maul to death 42 young people. King, there are so many miracles. I don't even know where to, like what else? King, you yourself were there when we went on that military expedition with those two other kings. And you remember, King, how we were out there and we were dying of thirst and without rain and without a river, water appears, it quenches our thirst and we defeat our enemies. There was another instance, King, where, where, where we had borrowed an axe and a guy was down there by the Jordan River and he's chopping away and the axe head falls off into the Jordan River. Elisha comes over, he waves a stick on the water and the axe head floats to the top. There was another instance where we were eating some stew and some knucklehead, instead of getting proper ingredients for the stew, actually puts some poisonous roots in there and people were really getting sick. He takes some flour, he puts it in the stew, and the stew is healed. There was another instance, king, where an entire army was blinded. There was another instance, king, and this is why I am a leper today, when he healed a general, a Syrian general by the name of Naaman. There are so many miracles, I can't even get to all of them, but by far, king, the most amazing miracle that he ever did happened over in the town of Shunem. Let me tell you what happened. There was a boy, and this boy was dead. He wasn't sick, he wasn't injured, he wasn't wounded, he was dead. I, I, I saw the boy myself. He was cold, he was laid out on the bed. He was dead, and I laid my staff on this boy. Nothing happened. Elisha comes into the room, he lays on top of the boy, and the boy comes... That's him. That's the boy. The boy came to life. King, the story that I am telling you right now about the boy, that is the boy. 
king says to the woman, is that true? Yes, it's true. And based upon that, the king says to an official, give this woman her house back, give her her property, give her everything that would have grown on that property during the seven years. That is restoration that was brought to this woman. Which begs the question, how did God bring about this restoration for this woman? What were the means that God used in order to restore her? Well, I have three of them, and they all begin with the letter P. First of all, our glorious message of restoration is controlled by the design of providence. What is providence? Providence is the doctrine that God is in absolute control over everything that happens, and he orchestrates the movements of the largest planet and the smallest molecule and everything in between, and not only does he control it, he controls it for a reason and with a design. He is sovereign over all. He has got the whole world in his hands. Divine providence. Uh, he has a lock on all things, L-O-C-K. He limits, he orders, he controls, and he knows everything. He ordains whatsoever comes to pass. That is what the Westminster Confession of Faith said. A little bit longer is the abstract of principles from the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, which in Article 4 says, that God from eternity decrees or permits all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events, end quote, and well said. Providence, providence, God is in control. Now notice in this story how God's providence is at work. What are the mathematical odds that at the exact time when Gehazi was speaking about this woman and her son, that they would walk into the room at that exact time, after having been gone for roughly 2,550 days. What are the chances? A hundred to one? Maybe a thousand to one? How about a billion to one? So you're saying there's a chance. The, the math is astronomical. It cannot be figured that that would happen coincidentally in confluence with him speaking about the woman and her son and them walking in at the same time. You see, if we believe in the God of the Bible, then we believe that he is in charge and that he is in control and that he is directing traffic. And since that is true, there is no such thing as luck, for if luck exists, then the God of the Bible does not. You will hear young people often say of something that happens, oh, that was so random. Well, I, th I think I know what they mean by that, that it is an unusual happening, but it's not random at all. It is absolutely by design. Everything is preordained. Everything is by design including where you are in life right now and including where you are sitting right now in this worship center. Everything is under the divine control of 
God. You'll also hear young people say this sometimes. Something good will happen, something unusual will happen, and they will say this. Oh, that was such a God thing. Well, I'm, I'm not going to argue with that because every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. That, that good thing which happened is a God thing. My question to you would be this. Can you tell me something which is not a God thing? Everything that happens, by definition, is a God thing because God is in control of everything. He is in control of all of our movements. He's got the whole world in his hands. We take comfort in hope of restoration, knowing that we are exactly where we are designed to be by the sovereign hand of a God who controls all things by his providence. Let me illustrate it with a story. Several years ago, I had a friend that I was trying to witness to. I was trying to evangelize him. I had been trying for a very long time. He did not live in the same state that I lived in. He lived in another state. This man had several things going against him. First of all, he was from a Jewish background. His family did not believe in Jesus Christ. He was from a scientific background. He was raised to be an atheist. He didn't even believe that God existed. For the most part, he was a homeless man, but occasionally he would get an apartment, but usually he was a homeless man and he was a heroin addict. He had a lot of things going against him. I would frequently try to give him the gospel. I would try to invite him to church. In all the years that I knew him, I was only able to get him to go to church one time, and it seemed uh, very ineffective the one time that he went. Well, several years ago, he is out walking the streets, and he is strung out on heroin, and he is hit by a car. He's then taken to a hospital. When he goes into the hospital, it is uh, discovered that the clothes that he is wearing, they are completely unwearable. And so his clothes are thrown away, and he spends about six weeks or eight weeks in a hospital uh, being cared for for his injury and also being dried out from his heroin addiction. After being there for six or eight weeks, uh, he is transferred to a rehab center. Now, as providence, that's our word for the day, providence, as providence would have it, there was a nurse who was caring for him. She was not a Christian at the time. She is now a Christian, but she was not a Christian at the time. But she was a very compassionate and a very loving person. And so she took an interest in this man. And when it was time for this man to be released, it was discovered that he didn't have any clothes. And so she went to one of her mother's friends, who was roughly the same size as this man, and said, can you donate something for him to wear so that when he goes to the rehab center, he will have some clothes. And so a man by the name of Chris gave some clothing to this man, and he was able to go to the rehab center. As he's released from the hospital to the rehab center, which is about 40 miles away, he gets to the rehab center and he calls me up and he says, you're not going to believe where I have been for the last eight weeks. And he tells me his story. And I said, where are you right now? And he told me where he was 
And it just so happens by providence that in that particular town, I knew a group of Christians. And so I formed a group text and I included about 10 people and I said, my friend is in this rehab center. Would you please go and visit him? And in visiting him, would you please take the gospel to him? Moments later, a woman responds and she says, I know who this man is. My daughter is a nurse. And for the last six weeks, she has been caring for this man. She loves this man. A few minutes later, Chris chimes in. Remember Chris? Chris is the one that gave up his clothes. Chris chimes in and says, I'm on my way to the rehab center right now. I don't know this man. I don't know what he looks like. I'll just go in and look for the guy who's wearing my clothes. My 10 friends over the next couple of months went into this man and took him the gospel relentlessly. They loved him. They shared the word with him. Initially, he was resistant. Eventually, he cracked and he broke. And he came to place his faith in Jesus Christ. And when he gave me his testimony as to why he came to Christ, he said, I could not get over the mathematical impossibility that a person who was your friend had a daughter who took care of me, who had another friend who gave me my clothes, and it was 40 miles away. You cannot calculate the mathematical odds of that happening. I believe that there has to be a God. And since there is a God, who is that God? It seems as though the God that these people are talking about in Jesus Christ, his son, is the true and living God. And he placed his faith in Christ, in part due to the doctrine of providence. Friends, I don't know where you are right now in life. I don't know how you got to where you are. But think about it. What are the chances that Gehazi is talking about the woman when her and her son walk into the room? You are exactly where you are supposed to be. You have been brought to this point in your life through the hand of divine providence It is not random. It is by design. It is by the design of a good and kind God. Number two, how did restoration come about in the life of this particular woman? Well, our glorious message of restoration is communicated most effectively in the context of pain. What was the greatest pain that the Shunammite woman ever experienced? That's an easy one. It was the death of her son. I don't want to think about it very long. I certainly don't want to meditate upon it. But can you imagine in part how that woman felt as she is moving from Shunem all the way to Mount Carmel, 16 miles, to get Elisha the pain that she must have felt knowing that her little boy was dead back in that bedroom It's mind-boggling to think about the pain that that woman 
experience. But let's follow the story. If she walks into the presence of the king and interrupts the king, first of all, she's probably going to be chastised for even speaking to the king. What was it that caused the king to take notice of the woman? It was the fact that she had a son who used to be dead but was now alive. And if he had not been dead, he would not have come back to life. And if that had not happened, the king would not have paid attention to her and she would not have received the restoration of her property and her land. The restoration which, ex which she experienced in part was brought about by what? It was brought about through the pain that she had to endure. Now, I'm sure that as she was going through that pain, those hours or that day when her son was dead, she wasn't saying to herself, well, I know that this one day is going to work out for good. Well, she wasn't saying that at all. She was going through the genuine pain of having lost her son. But yet, in the end, God is the one that used those circumstances and that pain to bring about ultimate restoration. Let's consider the story of Joseph. If Joseph doesn't get the coat of many colors, he's not the favorite. He's not the favorite. He's not hated by his brothers. If he's not hated by his brothers, he doesn't get sold into slavery. If he doesn't get sold into slavery, he doesn't go to Egypt. If he doesn't go to Egypt, he doesn't meet Potiphar. If he doesn't meet Potiphar, he doesn't meet Potiphar's wife. If he doesn't meet Potiphar's wife, he doesn't get falsely accused of rape. If he doesn't get falsely accused of rape, he doesn't go to prison. If he doesn't go to prison, he doesn't meet the cupbearer. If he doesn't meet the cupbearer, he doesn't interpret the cupbearer's dream. If he doesn't interpret the cupbearer's dream, well, then the cupbearer doesn't know that he can interpret dreams. And when Pharaoh has the big dream about the seven years of plenty followed by the seven years of famine, then the Egyptians will not save during the seven years of plenty. And if they do not do that, then people in that region are going to die. And if people in that region are going to die, then his family is going to die. And if his family dies, then his brother Judah dies. And if his brother Judah dies, then there is no King David. And if there is no King David, then there is no King David's greater son. And if there is no King David's son, Jesus Christ, I'm going to hell and so are you. But as, as, as pain would be an element in all of it, what ends up happening is that the painful things which he went through were used ultimately to bring about restoration. Now, you can look at any segment, any segment of the life of Joseph and put on blinders, and, and he would have great cause to be discouraged and to say, what is God doing? This makes no sense. I am in prison for a crime that I have not committed and I am forgotten. What good possibly can come from that? But when we get in our Romans 828 helicopter and lift off of our immediate circumstances and we see the grand panorama of everything that God is doing, then we can conclude that he causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him, for those who are the called according to his purpose. You have to see 
that God has a grander design other than our immediate pain. And that pain which we are experiencing is often an integral element in our ultimate restoration. And that is why at the end of the book of Genesis, when his brothers come to him and they say, hey, you know, dad said you're supposed to forgive us. And Joseph begins to weep and he says, am I in the place of God? You guys are bad. I mean, you meant it for evil. I'm not going to cut you a break and say that you had any good intentions in that. You meant it for evil and it hurt. However, there is something greater at play and what is that? God meant it for good. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And the current circumstances which we find ourselves in right now is bringing about the restoration of life. And Joseph didn't even know what he was talking about because ultimately that restoration of life meant the restoration of the life of the Messiah who would bring about the ultimate restoration of our life eternally forever. Pain. What are you going through right now? I don't know. I don't know you. I just know that I'm looking at people, and if I'm looking at people, I am looking at hurting people. Please don't be in despair today concerning your pain. You probably don't know the reason for it in the here and now, but we'll understand it better by and by. It is not random, it is by providence, and God is going to use that pain to bring glory to himself, and he's going to use it to work good in your life. What's the greatest pain that the world has ever known? It was on Mount Calvary. It's where the spotless Lamb of God, one who had never done wrong, one who was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin, he, 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 he goes for his people to the cross. And what happens on the way to the cross is they jerk out his beard and they pummel him and they spit on his face and they flog him and they mock him. But that's not not the real pain. It, it, It is a pain which occurs when he is nailed to the cross and he becomes a curse for us. Cursed is everyone that hangs upon a tree. He bore in his body our sins upon the tree. And there is pain such as the world has never known. It is the pain and pollution of your sin being placed upon the spotless Lamb of God. But it's not just the pain in his body. It's not just the pollution of your pain on him. But the most intense form of pain is when holy God looks down upon Christ. And now when he is upon that cross, he is as vile and as filthy as any child molester or rapist or extortioner or terrorist that ever lived. Why? Because he is bearing their sins. As Martin Luther said, Jesus is the greatest sinner that ever lived. He never committed a sin, but our sins are placed upon him. And the Lord hath placed upon him the iniquity of us all. And God, who is holy, cannot turn a blind eye to sin. And so for six hours, God in heaven hammers his son to death to the point where Christ cries out, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? 
See, our salvation doesn't just have an element of pain. By definition, the very heart of our salvation is pain, the pain that he endured for us on the cross. And hallelujah, that pain was finished and he cried out, it is finished. It is because of the pain of the Son of God that I am going to heaven and so are you. Yes, pain is an element that God uses to bring about our restoration. Thank God for that pain. Don't want to be unsympathetic to the pain which you are going through in your life right now. I'm sure that it hurts. But I also want to say it's not purposeless. God is going to use it one day to bring about ultimate good. So restoration is brought about by providence, and it is brought about by pain. But finally, this morning, I want you to notice that our glorious message of restoration must be accompanied with a demonstration of divine power. Power. Uh, specifically, the power of a risen son. I mean, you think about it. Here is a boy who was dead, and if he had remained dead, and the woman walked into the room and said to the king, will you give me restoration? For I am a widow. I have lost my son. This wicked king would not have been moved. That which moved his heart was to see a boy who was dead. Here we go. But is now alive. See, the reason the king was willing to restore her property was because a previously done dead son was now alive and standing by her side. There is something special about this woman. She'd walked into the room and said, I think you should restore my property because I am a benevolent woman. I have provided for the prophet. The king would have said, first of all, ma'am, we've just had a seven-year drought. Get in line. We're not restoring people's property. And secondly, I don't even like that prophet. I wish he were dead. Now, there was nothing meritorious about the woman. In fact, he wasn't even primarily interested in the woman. It was the son who was dead and is now alive. That's who he was looking at. And so I want you to follow the argument from the lesser to the greater objectively, and then we will look at the power of a risen son subjectively. First of all, objectively, follow the argument from the lesser to the greater. If a wicked king, hearing the testimony of a leprous, defrocked clergyman, was willing to grant total restoration to a woman that he did not even know, based upon a boy who was dead but was now alive, but a boy who would eventually die and die permanently, how much more, we're moving on to the greater now, how much more will a loving, eternally good, intentional God not grant ultimate restoration to his elect when he sees his perfect, eternal son standing by our side, proof of our justification, a son who was dead but now is alive and is alive forevermore? In other words, before the throne of God, I have a strong and perfect plea. 
I'm going to be standing one day before this God. And man, am I ever happy that he's not going to be looking at me, but he's going to be looking at my advocate by my side, one who was dead, but is now alive. King Jehoram was not looking at the merits of the Shunammite woman. He was looking at her risen son. You see, objectively, the power, the power of the resurrection is your ultimate restoration. It is your eternal restoration. Objectively, we have something to stand on. Objectively, we can make an appeal to the king. It's Christ, the risen son. That is our appeal, and that is our only appeal before God. But now I want to speak to you about it subjectively. And that is, what would it be like to look at someone who was dead and is now alive? There would be evidence the alive person, this is very profound, the alive person would be alive and it would be noticeable. You know what the Bible says about us? It says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. There is none righteous, no, not one. We've all gone out of the way. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We are bad and we are dead. God, who is rich in mercy, for reasons only known to him, chooses through the power of his gospel to regenerate us, to bring us to life. When he brings us to life, here we go, another profound statement, we come to life. So it's 1955. My cousin is walking through the streets of Dubois, Pennsylvania, and he hears my drunk aunt making a fuss in the bar. 1959, my aunt falls down a flight of stairs and she breaks her back. She's in a hospital bed, writhing in pain. And she cried out to God and she said, God, please have mercy upon me. God, please save me. She said that as she was in that bed, she got a picture of herself. And when she saw the picture of herself, it was ugly. And she said, oh God, please have mercy upon me. Please save me. Please heal me. God saves her. God heals her. That's 1959. As soon as she gets out of the hospital, that next Wednesday night, she goes to church. She walks down the street to our little Christian Missionary Alliance Church. The custom back then on Wednesday nights during prayer meeting that the pastor, before the people would pray, would say, does anybody have a word of testimony? 
that they would like to share concerning the goodness of God in your life. There's my aunt. She's a baby Christian. And when that opportunity was given, she said nothing. She kept her seat. Prayer meeting ended. She walked home, went into her bedroom, got down by her bed, and started to weep. She said, oh God, I am so sorry. You have done so much for me. Tonight, I was ashamed to get up in front of those people and say anything. God, if you ever give me another chance to speak for you, I will never deny you again. That's 1959. I'm born in 1961. I'm raised in that church. Every Wednesday night, the pastor would stand and he would say, does anybody have a word of testimony to talk about the goodness of God in their life? I'm trying to be humorous, but this is actually factual. What he meant by that was, would anybody like to go second? Because Mrs. Schaefer is going to be the first person to get up and to talk about the love of God. It was like she was on springs. She would jump to her feet, and it was always fresh, and it was always real, and it was always speaking of the goodness and the love of God. And for as long as I could remember, that woman was giving testimony of the power of the risen son in her life. When you're alive, people can tell that you're alive and you look like you're alive and there is subjective evidence that somebody who used to be dead, the the town drunk, is now a new creation in Christ. And I fear that what might be the case for some of you is that you have checked all the boxes that are required in 21st century evangelical Christianity. You have prayed the sinner's prayer. You have been baptized. You have joined the church. Those are all good things. My question for you is, are you alive? What was your conversion an actual conversion? The woman did not walk in in front of the king with, with, with a corpse that she had propped up. Well, what's with that boy? Is he alive? Yeah, he's alive. No, no, it was, it was real. It was evident he was alive. My, my aunt was brought to life. So I ask, is there restoration in your life which gives evidence that you are alive? The alive are alive and it is evident. So we are weak and we are frail people. We are in need of restoration. Thanks be to God that he is working out his plan in providence. Thanks be to God that the pain which we experience is not random, but it is by design. And thanks be to God for his risen son who stands as our advocate. Thanks be to God for his power to restore us and to bring us to life, a life which is evident. Father in heaven, I'm speaking to people who need restoration. 
Lord, may they find it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Lord, may it be evident to everybody. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.